Genesis 25 verse 1. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Let me read that again. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Today we're going to finish a quadrilogy. There's such a word. I may have just made it up. A four-part series that I didn't even know we were doing. As we've been studying through, moving through this, this book of Genesis, this amazing book, I, I, we've been discovering so many different things, but in the last few weeks, I realized that we have been given a broad panoramic picture that encompasses four chapters, chapter 22, 23, 24, and 25, all together. And when you look at it in the big picture, it's mind-boggling. It's kind of like the Rose Parade. If you've ever seen the Rose Parade, ever been to the Rose Parade, if you go there, you can get a place on the side of the street and you wait and you watch as the floats go by. One by one they go by and you see them go by and oh, there goes another float, there's another float. One at a time and you watch the progression of the parade. However, if you were to hop in the Goodyear blimp and float high above the parade route, you could see the whole thing happening all at once. And that's how I feel when we pull back a little bit from the, the verse by verse and look at the big picture of four whole chapters. Suddenly it's like we're on the good Lord blimp. And as we fly on this blimp, we're able to look down and see something as a whole that we cannot see when we're just looking at people on floats. A panoramic view of God's master plan for all of history. And Abraham's new wife, Keturah, completes the picture perfectly, as I want you to see this morning. Now, people may ask, and you may have heard this question, why do you believe in the Bible? Why do you believe in the Bible? Why this book? Why not the Koran? Or why not the Book of Mormon? Or why not choose a different book and say, that's what I believe in? Why this one? Is it just a matter of choice? Well, God answers that pretty powerfully. If you flip in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41, it's about in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 41. And I hope that you don't believe in the Bible simply because that's what you've been told to believe in. And I, I hope that if you have any doubts or questions of the Bible, that you will research it and look into it. God's not into or needing to defend himself. He's not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid of your doubts. And as you go at Scripture, more people have become Christians because they started out atheists trying to go against or at the Bible. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21. This is God's challenge to false gods. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Judah says, or king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. And then coming out of the sarcasm, God says, Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. God says, you know, there's one very clear test that you can apply to any book to see if it is of God. To see if it is holy. To see if it truly is of a God that's real. You say to that book, show me the things that were 
And then by those things, reveal to me the things that are to come. Speak to me prophetically. Say what is now and what's going to happen later before it happens. And when those things happen, we'll be able to look back and say, oh yeah, that book, accurate. That book is true. Reality is, folks, the Bible is the only book that does this. And does it with pinpoint accuracy. It's as if the Lord is saying, show me another book that takes the former things. History. And declares not only what they were, but what they say, what, what they say about what will be. Show me another God who claims to prophesy. And has the ability not only to weave his message into the fabric of times and places and peoples and events. Not only to say, this is what's going to happen. But to show through history itself what is going to happen Again, God says, verse 23, Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are God. Why do I believe that the Bible is God's inspired word? Two reasons. The Bible declares God's message with language. In straightforward words, God comes right out and He says, This is what is going to happen. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 42 or 41, toward the end of the chapter, you'll see mention of a guy named Cyrus. Now, Isaiah wrote this scroll 150 years before this guy named Cyrus came along. Cyrus was a king in Babylon. And God said, I'm going to use Cyrus. He's going to be my instrument, my tool, to, to actually get the people back to Jerusalem. 150 years before it happened, and it happened exactly as God said it would. And stuff like that is all over the pages of Scripture. The Bible declares God's message with language, but the Bible also declares God's message with life. And this is the thing to grasp this morning. Not only does God say, this is what's going to happen, but God takes us through a journey of stories, real life stories, histories, things that came about. And as we step back, as we look back at the big picture, prophecy is in the very lives of the people. It's in the names of the people involved. It's in what the people do. Abraham taking Isaac up the hill, the same hill that Jesus went up. As an offering, I'm getting ahead of myself. In fact, let me give you some things here. Well, let me pray before I give you some things here. Father, we have a panorama to view this morning. We've been seeing it in chunks, in, in bits and pieces. We've been looking at separate pictures. Would you this morning, Lord, open our eyes to the big picture? The whole thing. Weave it all together before us and show us, Lord God, how mighty you are, how awesome you are. Show us, Lord, by your words. And by history itself, that you truly are God. Holy Spirit, speak through me this morning and be our teacher, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you four things to jot down. If you take notes, you might want to, to follow these, follow this line of thought. All the way back to Genesis 22. A review of the view from the good Lord Blimp. Number one. In Genesis 22, the sun is offered up. The sun is offered up. Abraham is the father. Isaac is the son. And Abraham, told by God, goes up Mount Moriah, takes his son. You've heard this several times over the last few weeks. And on the top of Mount Moriah, prepares to sacrifice, to offer Isaac as an offering to God because God asked him to. God stops the process. But the very same thing happened with another father and son, Jehovah and Jesus. As Jesus went up Mount Moriah himself to Calvary, was crucified there. And we saw all the parallels there that are stunning. Let me tell you something else about that story though. I believe Jesus himself spoke and taught from this very passage to at least a couple of his disciples. Why did Jesus do that? 
on a road called Emmaus. You see, on Resurrection Day, Jesus had already appeared to one or two people and word was out. And a couple of the followers of Jesus, a couple of disciples, were were freaking out talking about this. They're walking on this road toward Emmaus and they're discussing the things that had happened. Can you believe this? It's so weird. I mean, three days ago he was dead and now some of the women are saying he's alive. And, And do we believe them? Is it true? Could it be true? I mean, that's outrageous. And suddenly a man comes up. It's Jesus. They don't know it. Having a little fun. He comes up and he's disguised to them and he begins to just talk with them. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What do you mean what's going on? Where have you been? Haven't you heard of all the things going on in Jerusalem? That this Jesus was was crucified and, and we all thought he was the Messiah, but he's not? And Jesus listens quietly to their whole story. And in Luke 24, verse 25, after listening to them, it says that he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Listen to this. Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Beginning with Moses. In the Bible, when Moses is referred to in this way, Jesus isn't talking about Moses the man. He's talking about Moses the representation of the law. When Jewish people talked about reading from Moses, they understood that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In those five books, folks, there's nothing specifically written about the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah. Nothing specific. You can read through those and go, well, wait a minute. Jesus explained to them these things concerning himself from the books of Moses? Where? I submit to you right in Genesis 22. I can't imagine this. Think about it. Jesus walking along with the two men and saying, Remember how Abraham went up Mount Moriah? Do you recall those things in Scripture? Took his son to offer him up Mount Moriah? Isn't it interesting that this Jesus you're talking about himself walked up the same mountain? For the same type of sacrifice, father and son. I think Jesus right there explained it to them. Using the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and also the prophets. But Paul also taught about Jesus from these chapters. Paul himself. Well, where did he do that? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried... And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Folks, Genesis 22 is the only place in the scriptures where we find this picture in totality. The death, the burial, the three-day waiting period, the resurrection of Christ prophetically portrayed ahead of time. The only place you find it is in Genesis 22. Now Psalm 22 prophesies the crucifixion. Isaiah 53 reveals the sacrifice and the suffering. Jonah pictures three days to the resurrection. But there's no one place where it's all together in the same place. But Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac's story reveals the whole enchilada. So, in Genesis 22, the son is offered. But what happens immediately after the son is offered? Genesis 23, second point. Sarah is put away. 
In Genesis 22, the son is offered. In Genesis 23, Sarah is put away. For that's the chapter we studied, we read, where she dies and is buried. And Abraham says in chapter 23, verse 4, Give me a burial site among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now consider this. If Abraham is a picture of God, and Isaac is a picture of Jesus, what is it that Sarah portrays in this whole saga? Now, for you Bible students, you may know, Sarah's been portrayed by Paul in a certain light. He, he uses Hagar, the slave girl, and Sarah, Abraham's wife, is a picture of the law and the new covenant. But listen, Sarah also represents something else. Abraham's wife is the mother of Israel, and she herself speaks of the Jewish people, a picture of Israel itself. Isaiah chapter 51 verse 1 tells us, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, look at the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him, and then I blessed him and multiplied him. In the same way that Sarah was buried, listen to this, the Jewish system, like Sarah, was put away. Think about the timing of it. Jesus, when he was crucified, he was buried. He came back to life. And after that, after those things, what happened? On, on the time of the resurrection, Matthew 27 tells us, Verse 50, Matthew 27, 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The son is sacrificed. Immediately what happens? The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I submit to you that in this moment a radical shift in God's paradigm took place. Suddenly the old way was done. It is finished, Jesus said. The law fulfilled, Jesus said. The temple curtain torn in two, split from top to bottom. And suddenly that barrier between man and God was no longer there. It was gone. Sarah was put away. God says at this point, the old law, it's gone. It's put away. Israel at that time was put away. Very quickly after Jesus' death, Judaism began to fall apart. Israel as a nation fell apart. A.D. 70. Titus came in with Rome and destroyed Jerusalem and the Jewish people were scattered all over the world. And from A.D. 70 until 1948, there was no nation of Israel. It was put away in the same way that Sarah was buried, was put away. Well, number three, we come up to Genesis 24. Genesis 22, the son is offered up. Genesis 23, Sarah is put away. Genesis 24, the servant the servant is sent out. You may recall this from last week. Isaac is the groom, or a picture of Jesus. Eliezer, the servant, or a picture of the Holy Spirit. Rebecca is the bride of Isaac, or a picture of the church. And what happens after Sarah, the picture of Israel, is put away? Well, the father sends the servant out to fetch the bride. Again, think about the timing of these things as they happen in true, in true time, in real time, in history. Just like the Spirit at work in our world today, preparing the bride, so the servant was sent out to get the bride. And at the end of chapter 24, Isaac is praying for the bride. He's out meditating, thinking, in the wilderness. And he sees the bride coming. He meets her. He brings her into his mother's tent, and then he marries her. Folks, that's a picture of the raptured church. 
taken to the marriage feast of the Lamb, taken to be with Jesus. And right now, as we talk about Isaac, Isaac, our bridegroom, is praying for us. He's interceding for us in heaven, before the Father, the Bible tells us. He is at this time longing for, looking forward to the coming of his bride. But that's not the end of the story. It's amazing that at the end of chapter 24, we come to chapter 25, and the last piece of the panoramic puzzle falls into place. There is one more thing to see. Immediately after the son and his bride are married, watch what happens. Verse 1 of 25 again. Now Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. Number 4 in your notes, Genesis 25, the father secures a new wife. The father secures a new wife. The son is offered up in 22. In 23, Sarah is put away. In 24, the servant is sent out. And in 25... The father secures a new wife. Abraham gets married again. How many of you knew that Abraham had another wife besides Sarah? Very few of us even... To to who? Where's this? He got married again? Yeah. At 140 years of age. And he had kids. More children. Which we'll study about Wednesday night. Unbelievable. The father gets another wife. Folks. Did you know that Abraham is a picture of God the Father. And in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that God the Father has a wife. God has a wife. In the Old Testament, she's an adulterous wife. She's a whoring wife. And yet, He remains in love with her. He never lets her go. Jesus the Son has a bride for Himself. That bride is the church. But God the Father also has a wife. The Jewish people. Israel. Israel is wife to God the Father in this picture. Folks, listen closely here. God is not through with the Jew. He is not done. Would you flip in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 16? Ezekiel 16. This to me is one of the most stunning passages I think I've ever read in Scripture. The whole chapter, which we're not going to read all of, but we're going to read some selections out of it. The whole chapter is 63 verses long. And in this chapter, it's amazing. I ran across this. Last week on Tuesday, I was kind of studying for the Wednesday Bible study. And I came to this passage and began to read it and study it and look at it. And I was overwhelmed, as I think you will be looking at this picture of God dealing with His wife, Israel. Ezekiel chapter 16. I don't normally do this on a Sunday morning. I'm just going to read some chunks of the passage. Let the words speak to you. Listen closely to what God is saying here in verse 1 of Ezekiel 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Now Jerusalem is a picture of Israel, being the heart of Israel. Make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloth. You see, in those days, that's what they did with a newborn baby. Take the baby out, cut the umbilical cord, rub the baby down with salt to dry off the skin, and then wrap them in warm blankets. 
Verse 5, No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you, I saw you squirming in your blood. I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. And I made you numerous like plants of the field. And then you grew up, became tall, and reached, for the, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. The book of Ruth explains that a little better. How the covering of the skirt over the bride, it, it, was, it was a sign of acceptance, of love. And God says, I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. And then I bathed you with water, washed your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. Then I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a bracelet around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced from royalty. And then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted your beauty. And you played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places. Folks, the high places were the places that that Israel went out to worship false gods. Groves of trees up in high places where they put up Asherah poles. And they began to worship and follow after pagan gods. And God says here, you made for yourself high places of various colors. You played the harlot on them, which should never come about, nor happen. Skip down to verse 30, it gets worse. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God. While you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square, in disdaining money, you are not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to harlots, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus, you became different from those women in your harlotries, in that no one plays the harlot as you do, because you give money, and no money was given to you. Thus, you are different. He's saying, you should get paid for your harlotries. You paid other people to prostitute themselves with you. You chased after them. Your gain was your pleasure. Verse 35, Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because your lewdness was poured out, And your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols. And because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols. Therefore behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure. Even all those with whom you loved and all those whom you hated. I will gather them against you from every direction 
And expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Thus will I judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood or judged. And I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers. And they will tear down your shrines. Demolish your high places. Strip you of your clothing. Take away your jewels. And will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you. And they will stone you. And cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire. And execute judgments on you in the sign of many women. And then I will stop you from playing the harlot. And you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you. And my jealousy will depart from you. And I will be pacified and angry no more because you have not remembered the days of your youth but have enraged me by all these things. Behold, I will bring down your conduct on your own head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. Now skip down to verse 60. This is a picture of God with Israel, folks. Think about it for a moment. Jerusalem, this city of, of nothing, this desert place in the middle of nowhere, God chose it. These people picked out of nowhere, God began to build and give them a life. Along comes ultimately a kingdom, Saul, and then greater still, David and Solomon. And at the time of Solomon's kingdom, his wealth was unimaginable, beautiful. The splendor of Israel as a nation was awesome. But Israel as a nation trusted in their own beauty and they began to chase after pagan gods and chase after their harlotries. And so God said, I'm pulling the plug. No longer will I stand for this as any enraged husband over a wife who has become a harlot would. He says, I'm done. I'm through. But not completely. Verse 60. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish you an everlasting covenant with you. And then you will remember your ways. And, and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your younger and your, your older and your younger. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you, when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. Folks, in our world, if a woman did this to her husband, he would be done. He'd divorce her. A woman who leaves her husband says, that's it, I, I, I want to go and have affairs with other men. I want to pay other guys to come and be with me. Someone who turns against her husband that radically, that horribly. Even to the point, by the way, that Israel was sacrificing their own children to these pagan gods. By the way, today there's a big massive rally in Washington, D.C. A big pro-choice rally. Talk about children being sacrificed to pagan gods. We live in a world very similar to the world that Israel was living in. And we're surrounded with behavior that's very similar to the behavior of the people of Israel. And, and God said, that's it. I will let you live out your immorality. And your own sin will fall on your own head. And it will fall hard. But listen. Because we're going to be singing this through all eternity. God is 
faithful. God is faithful. In a moment when you think, man, I've had a bad week. I've been kind of... I've been turning away from God. I'm not sure where God is. I haven't experienced His presence. I've been kind of uh, without Him. God is faithful. It is not your faithfulness that will save you, folks. It is not my faithfulness that's going to get me into heaven. It is His faithfulness. And Israel is a radical, graphic picture of this. We look at Israel and their history and what an awful history it's been. A hard, difficult time. But after the son is offered, and after Sarah is put away for the time, and after the servant is sent out, the faithful father takes a wife again. Genesis 25.1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. After the stench of death and loneliness, Abraham takes a sweet, perfumed wife. Folks, Israel's history has, with the exception of the kingdom of David and Solomon, really stunk. It's been bad. You may have seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof about the Jews in Russia and, and a Jew named Tevya who's the main character of the story. And at one point he's praying and he says, Lord, I know we are your chosen people, but couldn't you just choose someone else for a while? The road of the people of Israel has been harder than any other road for any other people in history. I want to read you quickly an excerpt from an L.A. Times article. Written by Eric Hoffer, a non-Jewish American philosopher. Listen to this. He says, The Jews are a peculiar people. Things permitted to other nations are forbidden to the Jews. Other nations drive out thousands, even millions of people, and there's no refugee problem. Think about this. Russia did it. Poland and Czechoslovakia did it. Turkey threw out a million Greeks. And Algeria, a million Frenchmen. Indonesia threw out heaven knows how many Chinese and no one says a word about refugees but in the case of Israel the displaced Arabs have become eternal refugees everyone insists that Israel must take back every single Arab other nations when victorious on the battlefield dictate the peace terms but when Israel is victorious she must sue for peace Everyone expects the Jews to be the only real Christians in this world. Other nations, when they are defeated, survive and recover. But should Israel be defeated, it would be destroyed. Had Egyptian President Nasser triumphed in June 1967, he would have wiped Israel off the face of the map. And no one would have lifted a finger to save the Jews. No commitment to the Jews by any government, including our own, is worth the paper it's written on. The Jews are alone in the world. And he writes, if Israel survives, it will be solely because of Jewish efforts and Jewish resources. No. If Israel survives, when Israel survives, as Israel survives, it will be because of the faithfulness of God. That article, by the way, was written... In 1968, little has changed in the case of Israel since then. If you could sum up the entire long journey of Israel in the world, you could call it a walk through the fire. For that's exactly what's happened. She was a chosen wife to God, whose son was offered up. And after that, she was put away. And then the servant was sent out to fetch the bride for the son. And after all this, the chosen wife of God, Israel, will go through the fire again in a time called the tribulation. 
It's detailed in the Bible in the books of Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Zechariah, Matthew, Revelation. It's all there, folks. But after this, after Israel goes through the fire of tribulation, she will be taken back. Wife to the Father. Restored. And folks, she will be restored as a sweet fragrance. What in the world does this have to do with Abraham's second wife, Keturah? And how does she play into this whole thing? Folks, Keturah's name means perfume. It means fragrance. Sarah meant princess. So Abraham first had a princess and then he had some perfume. I mean, this is his two wives. But it's more than that. If you dig and look, Keturah's name, and this is absolutely amazing, it's not just fragrance or perfume. The name literally means turned into fragrance by fire. Brought through the fire to become a sweet perfume. The word is directly linked. Keturah is directly linked to the sweet fragrance of incense that was burned on the altar in the temple. It had to be burned, but once burned, it yielded up a sweet, beautiful fragrance. Keturah, folks, is a picture again of Israel. Brought back to the Father, having gone through the fire, but now is a sweet perfume, a sweet essence. Isaiah 54, 5 tells us your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who, called, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you, listen, like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit. Even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. Isaiah is speaking to the Israelites. For a brief moment, God says, I forsook you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. I will gather you. What in the world does this all have to do with me? That's great news for Israel. But what about me this morning? In Eric Hoffer's 1968 L.A. Times article, he ended the editorial, written again almost 40 years ago now, with a stunningly accurate statement. He speaks of America, but his words are much bigger than he knows. Hoffer writes, I have a premonition that will not leave me. As it goes with Israel, it will go with all of us. As it goes with Israel... So it goes with you and with me this morning. As it goes with Israel, so it goes with us as well. Why? Because God's faithfulness to the Jew is directly linked to you. If God does not maintain His promises to Israel... If God does not stay faithful to what He said He would do for the Jew, why would you and I ever think He would remain faithful to us in saving us? Why would we ever assume that this God who would break promises would keep promises to us? But see, He doesn't break His promises. He doesn't break His faithfulness. He is remaining faithful to the Jew partially as a reminder, as a picture for you and I that He is faithful to us as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. 
That in everything you are enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, listen, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, Paul says, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I know this is a big thing to cover this morning. There's a lot to this, but gang, all of our study is simply to say those three words. God is faithful. And when you look at this vast panorama from Genesis 22 through 25, you see this picture of His love, of His faithfulness, of His desire to save not only Israel, but all people. For Isaac to have the bride and the bride to be brought into the family. And for Abraham, the father, to receive a new wife. The wife again, a fragrant wife, Israel. <coughs> Folks, following Jesus is being drawn into a salvation that is eternal and God's faithfulness will never, ever end. Isaiah 45, verse 5, last verse. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun there is no one besides me I am the Lord and there is no other 